today we're in Psalm 54. It's a psalm of David. Um, there are one of many, right? Uh, there are 150 psalms in the Bible. Half of them are written by David. 73 of them are uh, attributed to him explicitly in the psalm, in the title of the psalm itself. Two additional psalms. Uh, are attributed to David in the New Testament. So they're, they're kind of anonymous in the, in the Old Testament, but we can see from the New Testament that they were written by, by David. A handful of other uh, you know, psalms are written by other folks. Asaph, the sons of Korah. Moses wrote some. Solomon wrote some. But Psalm 54 is a psalm of David, and it kind of falls into the category of a psalm of lament. Right? Psalms that are crying out to God, asking him for help. Expressing a deep or profound need, mourning a loss uh, or grieving, struggling, kind of grasping to remain hopeful uh, in the midst of difficulty and suffering. Those are uh, what the, the Psalms of Lament typically look like. Most of the Psalms of Lament are going to fall into one of two categories, either uh, communal laments. So they're, they're, you, know, you kind of see them in the, the, the plural. Uh, you know, it's kind of the, the community grieving together, longing together, expressing uh, truths about national and collective experiences, or individual laments. And that's what this one is. Psalm 54 is uh, an individual lament where it's the, the, the psalm writer, the song writer, is writing specifically about something that they are experiencing and that they are uh, going through. So, I'm going to read Psalm 54, and then we're just going to take some time and think about it and meditate on it together. It reads, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer and give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life, they do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask your Holy Spirit to come here and be with us this morning. Lord, we confess that apart from the Spirit's power, we cannot understand your word. We cannot hear and believe the gospel. Lord, I confess that apart from the Holy Spirit's power, I cannot uh, communicate the gospel. And so we need you. We are absolutely and utterly dependent on you. We pray that you would come here with us as we sit under your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, before we jump into verse 1, I want to take a brief second and look at the title of, uh, of Psalm 54. You can see it's the next slide after, uh, after the, the psalm is over, Jerry. It says, uh, the, Lord, the title of the psalm, The Lord Upholds My Life. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskil of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? If you're reading in a Bible, you can see that kind of uh, title and kind of superscript, as it were, uh, above the psalm itself. It says it's a maskil of David. I don't, we don't know what that is. No one knows what a maskil is. 
It's just a weird word that we see in Hebrew. We think it means uh, it's some sort of musical or liturgical word. Um, so, so, you know, a masculine, some sort of song. But it's derived from another Hebrew word that we see a lot in the Old Testament that's often translated as wise or prudent or insightful or understanding. And so a mass kill uh, then uh, is, is some sort of musical or liturgical thing, probably a song or a, a poem set to music that specifically has, it, it, it's, it's you know, particularly contem- contemplative, it's particularly meditative, it's intending to impart truth or, or wisdom. So that's what a mass kill is. Um, at least as best as we can determine. And so this is a masculine of David that's intending to, uh, you know, you know um, impart truth and wisdom uh, in song. And it's specifically situationally written uh, when David, written by David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? So, quick overview of David's story to get our bearings of what was happening in his life when he wrote this song. God's people are in Egypt. They're enslaved by Pharaoh. God raises up Moses. He brings them out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They go to Sinai. They come into the promised land. They take the promised land. They're ruled by judges in the promised land. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of God demand a king. They say, everyone else has a king. We want a king. God says, you don't need a human king. I'm your king. They say, no, it's not good enough. We want a human king. So God says, all right, fine. I'll give you a human king. He gives them Saul. In 1 Samuel 10, Saul's anointed as king, and he's a bad king. In 1 Samuel 15, God rejects Saul as king. In 1 Samuel 16, God anoints David as the next king. In 1 Samuel 17, David fights against Goliath. He starts to kind of, no notoriety starts to form around David and his rise, his ascendancy to the throne. In 1 Samuel 18, uh, David becomes really good friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. In 1 Samuel 19, uh, Saul kind of gets wise to all this. And he's like, I don't like this guy, David. I think he's kind of trying to take my job. Uh, I think he wants to be the king. And so he gets mad. He starts trying to, to kill uh, David. He's jealous, and so he tries to take him out. In 1 Samuel 20, uh, Saul's son Jonathan warns David, who they're best friends. He says, hey, my dad's trying to kill you. You need to run away uh, so that he can't uh, murder you. By 1 Samuel 22, uh, David is hiding. He's a fugitive. You know, he, he's hiding in a cave, and he's just hoping that Saul and his men can't find him and kill him. In 1 Samuel 23, he's left the cave, and now he's hiding in the wilderness in Ziph. And out of nowhere, right, unprovoked, just kind of because they're jerks, the Ziphites go to Saul and they're like, hey, in, in, in 1 Samuel 23, 19 through 20, we have it uh, on the slide. They say, David is hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hakila, which is south of Jeshimon. Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. They just sell David out, tell Saul exactly where he is, so that Saul can come and murder David. David's like, what the heck, guys? You know, what did I ever do to you that you would rat me out and go to the guy who's trying to murder me and tell him where I am? Am. David's fearing for his life. Someone much stronger with more resources is trying to kill him. Someone that he's never done anything to, who had no reason to harm him, handed him over to that guy. 
That's what he's experiencing. That's where he is at. And that is what's kind of going on in his heart and his mind and his soul as he's writing Psalm 54. Is that danger, that uh, you know, fear, that anxiety, that betrayal, and that uh, uncertainty. Of course, David would eventually get away. Right? He, he escapes. Saul has to divert his attention elsewhere. Eventually David becomes king, but not before numerous setbacks and numerous difficulties. And so Psalm 54, Psalm 54 was written in the midst of one of many difficulties that David experienced on his rise to the throne. So it's a psalm of contemplation. It's a psalm of meditation written by a man who's on the run for his life, being chased by someone who's trying to kill him, written by someone who's been sold out to his enemy so that the people who sold him out can ingratiate themselves to the king, right? Maybe the king will give us some sort of ancillary benefits. Maybe he'll pay us off. Maybe, you know, he's rich and powerful. David is, is poor and powerless. Let's sell out the poor guy to the rich guy in the hopes that we can kind of come out on top in this whole ordeal. That's what David's experiencing. That's what's like swirling in his heart as he writes these words. And then we can look at verse 1. He says, Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Right? God, uh, save me. Vindic- I-, I need you. Right? Uh, notice the subject. Notice the verb. Notice the direct object. Notice the, the means. God is the one who saves. God is the one who vindicates. Right? God, God is the one doing the saving. God is the one with resources at his disposal. David is, is, is not acting. David is being acted upon. God, I need you to save me. David's not doing, not accomplishing, not earning, not acquiring. He's being acted upon. He's being saved. He's being vindicated. We love the idea of self-sufficiency. We love the idea of self-reliance. Our, our whole mark, our, our lifestyle, our, our culture is built on it, right? American dream. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? Whatever it is that you want in life, go out and get it. Don't rely on anyone. Don't Ask for a handout, right? Uh, go contrib- make the life that you want for yourself. Go and do it. Live and die by your own efforts, your own competence, your own abilities. It's the American dream. That's how we understand ourselves. That's how we understand our own personal freedom and, and liberty and autonomy. Right? If, I, if everything that I have is mine... I went out and got it. I didn't ask anyone for help. I worked for it. I earned it. I got it in its mind. If all of that is true, then no one can tell me what to do with it. No one can infringe on my rights. No one, you know, no, no taxation without representation, right? Don't, don't tread on me. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me who I can and can't be with. You can't tell me who I can and can't marry. You can't tell me what gender I can or can't identify as, right? We're all about right or left. We're all about personal autonomy. No one tells me what to do because everything I have is mine. I got it. I earned it. And because I did, I can do whatever I want with it. That's the air that we breathe. Again, it's not a right or left. It's, it's just everything. That's the air that we breathe. Meritocracy. Eat what you kill, get what you earn. No one tells you what to do. 
And there's a sense in which that's necessary for, to like live in a society together with one. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, if you're not willing to work, then you're not allowed to eat. Right? So there's a sense in which uh, you know, we have to contribute, we have to kind of you know, uh, work and, and earn. But that's not the way our relationship with God works. There's a sense in which you work and earn so that you can partake in the collective society kind of with our neighbors, but with our relationship with God, there's no, uh, this is mine, I did it, I earned it, I acquired it, I can do what I want with it, right? When we're dealing with our relationship with God, it's like verse 1, God, you save me, you vindicate me by your might, not mine, by your strength, not mine, by your name, not my own. When it comes to the gospel and our relationship with God and our salvation, it's God who accomplishes it. It's God who gets 100% of the credit for it. We get 0% of the credit for it. We don't earn our own salvation. We don't even cooperate with God in the accomplishing of our salvation. There's two kind of theological concepts uh, called monergism and synergism, a monergistic understanding of salvation and a synergistic understanding of salvation. Synergy, probably heard it if you worked in a corporate culture or anything like that. It just means teamwork. It means, right, all, all the people come together, cooperate together, and the end result is of what they have is greater than the sum of their individual efforts if they were kind of working in a vacuum or in a silo. Synergism means we cooperate together to accomplish a goal together. That's synergy. A monergistic understanding, or a monergistic understanding is the exact opposite. It's one guy does all the work, the other guy reaps all the benefit of that one guy's work. Salvation is not synergistic like teamwork. Salvation is monergistic. God saves sinners. Sinners don't save themselves. Sinners don't make themselves savable. Sinners don't help God to save them. God saves sinners. Sinners. That's what David is saying here. God, you save me. You vindicate me. When you do, you get the glory. I don't. I need you to save me. And it's not just to save me and vindicate me, but it's also, God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my... Listen to me. Hear my, my plea. Don't be deaf to me. Don't, don't, be, don't be unaware of or unconcerned with my cry for help. In order for God to save us, he has to be big. He has to be strong and kind. Like the salt, right? He has, he has to be strong and sovereign and kind and good and, and willing and able to save us. And he needs to be aware of us. He needs to hear us. He needs to know that we need saving. He needs to be listening to us when we pray to him. So, so, that, so that when we are speaking to him, he, he hears us. God, I need you to take care of me and save me. But before that, I need you just to be aware of me and to listen to me as I speak to you. I didn't know this before I got married and had a kid, but there's like a biological thing that kicks in with parents when they have young children. Like this like superhuman ability to hear your kids from miles away, you know? Mostly moms, some dads, I suppose, but um, in our family, it's mom, right? The kid can be literally other side of the house, on the playground across the street, whispering a secret to his friend, and mom's like, hang on, I think I hear 
I think I hear Baxter. You know, I, I hear my kid is talking. I think he might might need me. I have this like supernatural, superhuman ability to hear this tiny little dependent baby, which is great when the baby is a little, you know, little tiny baby and they can only lie there and do nothing. The older the kid gets, it can become taxing. In our family, it's taxing right now. Right, Jerry's like superhuman ability to hear Baxter, and you know, it's, you know it's, it becomes taxing because, uh, you know, it sh- sh- we'll, we'll be trying to sleep at night, and you know, most nights now Baxter doesn't sleep through the night. <laughs> Very few nights there will be a problem or an issue. He's hurt. He's sick. Right? He, he needs our attention. There's a mess that needs to be cleaned up. Something like that. He'll have a bad dream. He needs someone to come in and hold him and reassure him. That's the, ver- that's the overwhelming minority of nights is when there's something like that. But the overwhelming majority of nights, Baxter is, is awake and just entertaining himself. Just verbally, loudly. And, and poor, you know, poor mom can't sleep because her, like, she's like biologically attuned to this kid and his voice and is everything okay with him? I have to hear him. I have to make sure that everything that he does is okay. And he is. He's just sitting in his room, you know, trash. He just says all of his words. Trash truck, fire truck, bulldozer, excavator, applesauce, sausage, right? Uh, baseball, pictures, pictures of Baxter on mom's phone. Like he has all of the, he has his whole Rolodex of every word that he says. He'll sit there all night long and just say them all and laugh to himself. Meanwhile, mom is like dying, struggling, trying to sleep and can't because this kid is just talking all night long. I am completely unaffected. So I go to sleep, pass out, and I have no, I mean, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll think, Sweetie, this was a great night, like 12 hours straight. Like, I can't believe he slept that well. And she's like, you do- he didn't sleep well at all. He was talking all night long and you were asleep all night long and you didn't. I was the only one who had to suffer through this. So don't think bad about us. We just turn our monitor off. We're like, like this kid, you know, if he ha- really has a problem, he'll cry loud enough that we'll hear him without the monitor. But we like, you know, he can't be talking all night long, keeping mom awake all night long with things that aren't serious and don't require our attention because we need to sleep. Psalm 121 says that God never sleeps. Ever. He's our helper. He's sovereign. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. He keeps us and takes care of us. God never uh, turns the monitor off. He's never uh, unaware of his children who are talking to him, crying out to him. God hears us. He hears our prayer. He gives ear to the words of our mouth. We can trust him. We can trust that he is strong and kind and able and willing to take care of us. And we can trust that he is there and present and listening and attuned to us and knows when we need him and is listening when we speak to him. God, save me, vindicate me, hear my prayer, and here's why I need you to do that, God. Because strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. All right, so one, verses 1 to 2 is help me, save me. Verses, uh, verse 3 is uh, because I need saving. Right? My, my situation is desperate. Right? Remember David's circumstances. Right? Uh, Saul is trying to murder him. In, in, in 1 Samuel 18, Saul threw a spear 
at David while he was playing. He, he invited David into his chamber and said, I want you to play music to help me kind of settle down and, and relax a little bit. And while David was playing music, he took a spear, throws it at, throws it at David, barely misses him. And it says his goal was to skewer through David and pin him to the wall. So that's who is chasing David, that kind of murderous, aggressive, tall, big, strong guy that wants to kill him. And now David's got the Ziphites saying, Saul, here he is. He's right here. Come get him. Is there a reward that we can get for helping you find him? David's being betrayed and sold out by people who are ruthless, have no regard for God, no regard for the people of God. And those people are putting their sights on David. And here's the idea, right? The, the most, the, the greatest prayers that we pray in this life are often going to be prayed in the times of our greatest need. The greatest prayers that we pray in this life are often prayed in the time of our greatest need. So don't despise the times of your greatest need. Don't resent the times of your greatest need. Don't waste the times of your greatest need. But but leverage them to pray the greatest prayers of your... Like when, when my son was born and he wasn't breathing properly and they had to put him into an ambulance that costs... $1,000 a mile to operate and take him to the neonatal hospital, that prompts a different kind of reaction, a different kind of prayer than losing to your buddy in Mario Kart. Or, or you, you know, they don't have the color iPhone that you want in the store when you go to buy it. Right? The times of greatest need, greatest desperation, greatest fear, greatest anxiety, greatest suffering are going to give birth to the greatest and deepest prayers of your life. The prayers that are most honest and, and heartfelt and emotive. Right? We, we pray to God because we need Him. And so God allows circumstances that remind us how much we need Him so that we will remember that reality and pray to Him. God doesn't allow circumstances like that that are difficult or scary or dangerous or hard because He's bad. He doesn't allow circumstances like that because He's incompetent. He doesn't allow circumstances like that um, you know, because He is malevolent. He does it because he wants us to remember that we need him so that it will drive us to pray to him. Strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life and they do not set God before themselves. There's two, there's two errors that, I, that we should make sure to try and avoid with a verse like this. Over-identifying with David and under-identifying with David. Right, you, some people read, read verse 3 and they think, right, strangers risen against me, ruthless men seek my life. They don't say, amen, David, but I know how you feel. Like, I am right there with you. Strangers are, are opposing me. I am persecuted just like you. Ruthless men are seeking my life. I can totally empathize with your experience. You say, really? What's happening? Oh, man. Someone parked in my parking spot, right? Someone, you know, my internet's out and I called the company and they said they aren't going to fix it until tomorrow, 
right? Wicked men are rising up against me and persecuting me for my faith. It's like, I don't think that's what David is talking about here, right? Being a fellow church member confronted me about a sin pattern in my life and pointed it out to me and invited me to work on it and asked me if they could help hold me accountable to grow in that area. How dare they? How dare these godless people rise against me and, and persecute me and seek to take my life? It's like, I don't think that's what's happening here. I think that, uh, I think that you know, we, we all have this tendency to look at the world and see ourselves as the, the hero, the righteous prophet who's on a mission for God, doing God's will. Everyone and anyone who is, who is not you know, doing exactly what we want them to do, they are in the wrong. Everything that bad that happens to us is us being persecuted. It's us suffering for righteousness' sake. We become combative, agitated, belligerent. Every, everyone and everything around us is an enemy that we have to defeat and overcome because I am this righteous warrior for God's cause and everyone who doesn't conform to my will is, is uh, somehow you know, an agent of, of evil working against me. That's not how the Bible understands our experience. Sometimes, sometimes bad things happen not because wicked, godless people are persecuting us. They just... Bad things happen. Sometimes there's conflict, not because I'm right and they're wrong and they're persecuting me. Sometimes conflict happens because I'm wrong. Or I'm too prideful to see it or admit it. So you have to be careful not to over-identify with David and assume that we're always right and we're always on God's side and everyone that opposes us is wicked and rebelling against God and persecuting us. And we have to be careful not to under-identify with David. I imagine that a great many of us here, right, we read a verse like this. Right? Someone would say, all right, well, Ben, who is it? Who is that person in your life that's in this role? Who is it that's, that's ruthless and godless and rising against you and wants to kill you? And you'd be like, I don't think there is, I don't know. I don't think there is anyone. What am I, Jack Bauer? Like, there's no one like trying to kill me. I get up, read my Bible, I eat cereal, go to work, try to be a good husband, father, employee, church member. Right? There's no like, my life's pretty boring. There's no ninja assassins like Saul prowling around looking for a kill shot against me. So I can't really identify with this language with this image. First Peter five eight says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Jesus says that the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy. He's talking about you. Right? The enemy is looking to steal from you, kill you, destroy you. Revelation 12.10 describes Satan as the great accuser of the people of God who brings accusations about them before God day and night. You might not think that you have an enemy who's seeking to do you harm or who's looking to hurt you and kill you. But let me assure you, you do. His name is Satan. 
wants to kill you. He wants you to fall away. He wants you to punt the faith. He wants you to stop believing the gospel. He will do anything and everything that he can to make that happen. He'll tempt you with sin, self-indulgence. He'll make you, he'll try to make you feel stupid, right? Like Christianity is ridiculous and regressive and no one believes it, right? No, no one believes in hell anymore. Are we in the dark ages? People believe stuff like that. He'll try to make you think that believing in a biblical sexual ethic is, is mean and unenlightened. And you have to affirm all kinds of things that the Bible does not affirm. Satan will tempt you with uh, disillusionment. Right? You'll get annoyed at your pastor and leave the church. There will be a hero in the faith. And then you'll find out that they were a fraud or a scumbag. And now you think the whole Christianity thing is just all a, a, a scam. Satan will use anything and everything he can to tempt you and accuse you and pull you away from God. And pull you away from the gospel and the people of God. So if you look at verse 3, if you look at Psalm 54 verse 3 and think, that's a little harsh, that's a little dramatic, my life doesn't really look like that, I can't really identify with what David is experiencing there. You're like, you're like a guy who's in a paintball, you're like a guy who thinks he's in a paintball fight, but he's in Afghanistan with live rounds flying over his head, right? You're like a, like a person who thinks they're floating in a pool on a cruise ship, but they're in shark-infested waters with chum floating, right? Like, like the Christian life is not a game, it's not a vacation, it's not a, a, a joke, it's a, it's a war. It's a fight to the death with a person that wants to kill you. Satan wants to kill you. Your own sinful nature wants to overcome you and kill you. You have to kill it. You have to be, you have to be master over it, lest it destroy you and take you. So we can't over-identify with David lest we think that we're always right. Everyone else is always wicked. We're always the victim of persecution. So we're always combative and belligerent and entitled. We also can't under-identify with David and forget that Satan wants to destroy us. Sin is dangerous and we need to make war against Satan and against our own sinful nature. Verse 4. David says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies and in your faithfulness put an end to them. Now this is interesting because there's a shift in the grammar, right? Verses 1 through 2, it's all, God, uh, please save me. Please vindicate me. Please hear me. Here's the thing that I need you to do. And... If I'm being really honest, I don't know if you're going to do it or not, but I really need you to do it because my situation is so desperate. And now here in verses 4 and 5, it's God is my helper. Not God, please be my helper. God is my helper. God is the upholder of my life. God will return the evil to my enemies. There's this tension of, right, God, I, I need, I'm coming before you with all my hopes. Desires, dreams, fears, anxieties, worries, wants, needs. I need you to do this for me. And at the same time, God, I trust you. I trust that you're good. I trust that what you do is best. I trust that what you do is for my good. Prayer walks that tension of honesty and trust. 
Brutal honesty, ruthless trust. I'm going to be real with what I need, with my emotions. I'm an open book. And I trust you no matter what you do. I trust your character. I trust who you are. That's what a healthy prayer life looks like. It's honest and it's trusting. We're real with our emotions and our experiences and we punctuate that authenticity and that vulnerability and that transparency. We punctuate it with a dogged trusting in God and His will no matter what it is, even if it's not what we want. Some of us are happy to pour out everything that we are to God in prayer. Here's what I'm experiencing. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's everything inside of me. I'm going to pour it all out. Authentic. Vulnerable. But then when it comes time to trust in God's plan, not so, you know, we're not so good at it. When it comes time to trust in God's sovereign will, it's, it's, God, didn't you hear what I have been saying this whole time? God, I, I wrote, I wrote the play, I wrote your lines. Why aren't you reading the lines that I wrote for you? I have no problem being brutally honest, but once I am, I expect and I feel that I'm entitled for you, God, to obey me and do my will. So sometimes honesty comes easily, but trust does not. And sometimes it's vice versa, right? Sometimes trust comes easily. Right? We sing a song that says, whatever my God ordains is right. I'll be still and follow him wherever he guides me. I'll patiently wait for his will in his day. Sometimes it's easy to trust God and follow him, but along the way, we fail or refuse to be honest and real with God and communicate our concerns and fears and desires through prayer. Right? Maybe we have this idea, this intellectual idea that because God is sovereign... There's no point in me communicating with him. He's going to do what he's going to do anyway. So we don't pour out our hearts to God. We don't confide in God. And in Psalm 54, David pours out his heart to God and confides in God with brutal honesty. And he trusts in God. He trusts in the will of God, the character of God. He, he does not uh, doubt. He does not uh, you know, disbelieve the, the character of God, the sufficiency of God to save him, help him, uphold him, give him victory uh, where he needs it. Brutal honesty, ruthless trust. Which is exact, I mean, it's exactly what we see when Jesus prays in the Bible. In one of the most difficult hours of his life, as Jesus is thinking and praying and contemplating the brutal death that he's going to die as a sacrifice for sin at the hands of his own father, when he's going to absorb the wrath of God for the sins of his people, when that is on the horizon the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, this is what Jesus prays. He says, My soul is very sorrowful even to the point of death. Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Please remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. 
honesty, right? Take this cup from me. I am deeply sorrowful to the point of death. And trust, your will be done. That's how we should pray. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm experiencing. Here's what I'm afraid of. Here's where I think I don't measure up. Here's where I need you to intervene on my behalf. Here's what I'm praying that you would change about my circumstances because I'm scared and I'm suffering and I'm alone and I'm afraid. And I trust you. Whether you ever answer another prayer for me or not, whether you ever give me anything else ever again, I trust you and your will be done. And finally in verse 6. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked on the triumph of my enemies. So after crying out to God, praying for him to help him, after humbly acknowledging the desperation of a situation, after tenaciously resolving to trust in God no matter what happens. David looks ahead and he anticipates how he's going to respond to the sovereign grace of God in his life. Right, God, when, when I experience your grace and when I experience your favor and your love and your mercy as you, as you treat me better than I deserve to be treated, which you have done consistently, which has been a recurring theme in my life, as I experience more and more of that, here's how I am going to respond. By worshiping you. By thanking you. By giving a, a free will offering to you. There's all kinds of different sacrifices and offerings in um, ancient Israel. You can read through Leviticus and see a bunch of them. Burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering, sin offering, guilt offering. There's all kinds of festivals and holidays. Passover, Day of Atonement, Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Booths, etc., and all those are mandatory, so they all come with their own, like, you have to, uh, you know, you have to offer this particular sacrifice in this particular way. And then on top of all that, there were free will offerings that were totally optional. You don't have to do it, but you're welcome to do it. If you'd like to, it's not, not compulsory, it's not obligatory, it's just of your own free will. And David says, I will offer sacrifices like that based, because of your grace because of you because you have treated me better than i deserve i am going to offer sacrifices that i am not obligated to offer i'm going to worship you over and above how i am required to worship you not because i have to but because i want to and because i i get to god has delivered me god has saved me god has given me victory i will exalt him and make much of him that's what worship is. It's, it's, it's seeing God rightly for what He has done in our lives, and it's responding to God appropriately by worshiping Him, making much of Him, and exalting Him. And that order is very important. right? The order of seeing God and His grace and His mercy and then responding to God with repentance and faith and worship is very uh, important. Because if we get them mixed up, we, we find ourselves, you know, if you think, 
I worship God. I do. I bring something to God so that God will then treat me well. You fall into, you know, salvation by works. Right? If I if I pay the going rate, the retail price for salvation from God, then then I'll force God's hand, and He'll have to give me uh, what I want from Him. get the order wrong we end up with this transactional thing where our salvation becomes a paycheck these wages that god gives us because he's obligated to which is exactly what paul describes in romans 4 he says if you work for your salvation then your salvation is a paycheck not a gift if you get the order right if we understand that god saves us we are in a desperate situation and god saves us because of his sovereign grace and we trust in him and we receive his freely offered grace to us and then as a response to that we we then respond by worshiping him and thanking him and giving him a a a free will offering then we understand that God delivers. God gives us grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't merit it. We didn't deserve it. God gives it to us because He's good and gracious. And then we respond voluntarily. God acts. We respond. God initiates. We receive and, and experience. And then respond by worshiping and declaring how good He is. Right? Christian worship is seeing God rightly as our great and glorious and sufficient Savior, and then responding to God appropriately by worshiping Him, making much of Him, and living as He has called us to live. Seeing God rightly, responding to God. Right, right. God is... God is the sovereign creator. God stands in authority over everything. I owe God my life. He made me. I'm accountable to Him. God is my Savior. I've rebelled against Him. I've rejected Him. Right? God could have left me to my own devices. He could have consigned me to my own rebellion. He could have uh, you know, placed me in, in eternal conscious punishment in hell, but He didn't. He came to me. He drew near to me. He, he lived a perfect life in my place. He died a terrible death as a sacrifice for sin. He paid my penalty. He satisfied the wrath of God. He accomplished my salvation and He gives it freely to me. I, I see God rightly for who He is and what He has done and then I respond to God appropriately turning from sin, trusting in Him, receiving the free gift of salvation, enjoying it, rejoicing in it, thanking God for it, laying my life down as a living sacrifice in response to who God is as a spiritual act of worship. Loving God is my way of saying thanks to who He is for what He has done. Loving my neighbor as a way of saying thanks and worshiping God. Practicing the spiritual disciplines. Bible reading, prayer, attending church, becoming a member of a church, right? Singing to God, exalting God, making money. Right? The, the, Christ, the entire Christian life could, could be understood with that simple formula. Seeing God rightly and what He has done and responding to God in the only way that is appropriate after having seen God for who He is and what He has done. In Psalm 54, David is calling us to do just that. To cry out to God, to pray to God, to trust in God, right? Brutal honesty, ruthless trust. 
and then to respond by worshiping, singing, thanksgiving, living a life of humble, reverent submission to him in response to the sovereign grace that he has given freely to us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for hearing our prayer, for hearing our cry, for saving us from the desperate state that we were in. We thank you for the gospel. We pray that we might receive your grace and respond to it by worshiping you in spirit and in truth. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.